Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled Judas and Matthias on Mystery and Destiny and is based upon the lecture, lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 28th, 2006. In the remarkable film Capote, Truman Capote befriends a murderer named Perry Smith in order to research what he calls his non-fiction novel, In Cold Blood. Although he gave some legal help to Smith, Capote ultimately exploited him for fame and fortune. He fretted to his childhood friend Harper Lee, for example, that he actually needed Perry to die in order to finish his book. If they win this appeal, I may have a complete nervous breakdown, he said. He repeatedly lied to Smith about his book's progress, manipulated him for details, betrayed him to legal limbo, and when asked by Harper Lee if he esteemed Smith, he could only say, well, he's a gold mine. Interviewing Perry Smith also dislodged unsettling memories of Capote's own childhood, memories of exclusion as an effeminate kid, family suicide, alcoholism, and parental abandonment. These haunting memories fueled an obsessive act of self-identification with an emotional attachment to Smith, so much so that his gay partner, Jack Dumphy, accused him of falling in love with Perry. But despite their dysfunctional childhoods, their life trajectories could hardly have been more different. Capote became an icon of New York City's rich and famous glitterate and died of alcohol and drug abuse at the age of 60. Smith was a poor, obscure, petty criminal, a merciless killer who was executed by the state of Kansas when he was only 36. In the film, Capote pondered this mystery of fate and diverse destinies that unfolded from such similar beginnings. It's like Perry and I grew up in the same house, he said, and one day he stood up and went out the back door, and I went out the front. The reading from Acts this week introduces two men, both of whom served in the inner circle of Jesus' twelve apostles. For people across many cultures and for twenty centuries, the name Judas Iscariot has epitomized infamy, treachery, and tragedy. As for Matthias, despite his importance as the thirteenth apostle who replaced Judas, history consigned him to anonymity and obscurity. Since Acts chapter 1, 12 to 26 is the only passage about Matthias in scripture, we know virtually nothing about him. As I meditate on the lives of these two intimate followers of Jesus, I find it difficult, if not impossible, to understand how or why each one ended up where he did. Such is the mystery of destiny, both theirs and ours. With his famous kiss of betrayal, Judas, we read, quote, served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus, end quote. Acts chapter 1, verse 16. How could he have committed such a deplorable act? 
Three scriptures locate the explanation outside of and beyond Judas' own choices. John's Gospel for this week says that Judas was, quote, doomed to destruction, end quote, John 17, 12, as if some ominous fate overtook him. John and Luke also say that Judas' betrayal, quote, fulfilled scripture, John 17, 12, Acts chapter 1, 16. But their interpretation of the Old Testament to reach this New Testament conclusion is one that would probably make many hermeneutics professors scratch their heads. Third, Luke also writes that, quote, Satan entered Judas, end quote, to betray Jesus. Luke 22, verse 3. I don't find any of these explanations satisfying or very illuminating. But still, at a fourth level, we should not patronize Judas as a mere pawn. He did what he did for his own complex motives, some of which are no doubt lost to us today. He received his famous 30 pieces of silver, but I suspect that other factors came into play including some that he himself could not fathom. Perhaps it was natural when 150 years later some fringe Gnostic Christians tried to rehabilitate Judas's reputation. The recently discovered Gospel of Judas, a third or fourth centric Coptic translation from the original Greek that contains almost nothing that is specifically Christian, portrays Judas as a hero who betrays Jesus at his own request and not as the quintessential villain. As for his own convoluted motives and their tragic outcome, we can say three things. First, in itself, Judas's betrayal of Jesus is unremarkable. Peter denied that he would ever betray the Lord, but did so three times. The other eleven all said the same thing. But when Jesus was arrested, all the disciples deserted him and fled. Matthew chapter 26, verse 56. To be sure, we should never deny our capacity for denial. Second, after betrayal and denial, Judas and Peter responded in similar ways. After aiding and abetting in the condemnation of Jesus, we know, Jesus, we know that Judas was, quote, filled with remorse, end quote, and returned the blood money. Finally, in playing the most undesirable role in all of human history, in some sense, Judas took our place and triggered the events that led to the greatest good for all humanity, the death and resurrection of Jesus. The selection of Matthias to replace Judas is no less murky. Peter invokes Psalm 109, verse 8, to validate the process with the imprimatur of prophetic fulfillment. Quote, May another take his place of leadership. End quote. At a more mundane level, the eleven remaining apostles simply nominated two candidates. We read in Acts chapter 123, they proposed two men. When they prayed, they confessed that God himself had already chosen the right person and that their task was simply to decipher the divine predetermination. Finally, and I've always wondered if any church committee has ever dared to use this method, 
The apostles resorted to what one scholar calls dumb luck to ascertain the divine intent. A roll of the dice identified Matthias instead of the alternate Joseph called Barsabbas. Contemplating these mysteries of personal destiny, my mind has returned time and again to a poem by John Milton, who lived from 1608 to 1674 and was perhaps the greatest poet of the English language. Struck blind at the age of 44, in his poem When I Consider How My Light Is Spent, Milton ponders why God would gift him with such remarkable talents only to take them back. The ways of God felt harsh and arbitrary to Milton. Quote, Doth God exact day labor, light denied? End quote. Plunged into a world of darkness, Milton wondered. When I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent to serve there with my maker and present my true account, lest he returning chide? Doth God exact day labor, light denied, I fondly ask? But patience, to prevent that murmur, soon replies, God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts. Who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state is kingling, thousands at his bidding speed, and post o'er land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. Patience, humility, availability, and even resignation to the inscrutabilities of divine designs, all serve us well. In the words of Milton's near contemporary, George Herbert, who lived from 1593 to 1563, it's probably best to, quote, leave thy cold dispute about what is fit or not, end quote. Whoever we are, and wherever we are, a haunted novelist, a failed disciple, an obscure apostle, or a struggling poet, every person can serve God best, right where they are, even, as Milton said, only those who only stand and wait. And now for further reflection. First, what do you think of when you consider Judas? Second, what do you take from John Milton's poem, When I Consider How My Light Is Spent? Third, have you ever had to only stand and wait when you wanted to speed and post or land an ocean without rest? And finally, for further reflection, see the book by Professor Ray Anderson entitled, the gospel according to Judas. Is there a limit to God's forgiveness? My book review this week is of, is of an important book by Francis Fukuyama, 
entitled America at the Crossroads, Democracy, Power, and the Neoconservative Legacy. New Haven, Yale University Press, 2006, 226 pages. In 1992, Francis Fukuyama, professor of political economy at Johns Hopkins University, published his controversial book by the title The End of History and the Last Man. In that book, he argued that humanity had made no significant political progress since the French Revolution, and that the collapse of communism in 1989 signaled what he called the end of history. By end, Fukuyama meant that Western liberal democracy had triumphed over all political options. He revised this thesis a decade later in a book called Our Post-Human Future, Consequences of the Biotechnology Revolution from the year 2002, not because he thought his first book was wrong, but because he failed to consider the role of science as perhaps the chief engine that drives human history. Science drives any number of interests, technological, economic, ethical, social, and so on, but Fukuyama realized that it also increasingly drives our political life. A speech at the annual dinner for the Conservative American Enterprise Institute in February 2004 by the syndicated columnist and leading neoconservative Charles Krauthammer caused Fukuyama to change course yet again, this time rather drastically. Krauthammer's speech came about a year after America invaded Iraq and described the war as a virtually unqualified success. Whereas everyone applauded, Fukuyama was flabbergasted. Although for a long time he regarded himself as a leading neoconservative, he concluded that he could no longer support neoconservatism as a political symbol and a body of thought. So his newest book is thus, quote, an attempt to elucidate the neoconservative legacy, explain where, in my view, the Bush administration has gone wrong, and outline an alternative way for the United States to relate to the rest of the world, end quote. In his longest chapter, Fukuyama considers the neoconservative legacy, starting in the 1940s with its two godfathers, Irving Kristol and Norman Podhoritz. He argues that neoconservatism's detractors vastly overstate the uniformity of views that existed within the group of self-identified neoconservatives since the 1980s. But he also admits that most people understand neoconservatism as it was later shaped by Robert Kagan and William Kristol. Despite the disclaimer about any party line, Fukuyama identifies four basic principles of neoconservatism. First, the belief that the internal character of, of regimes matters and that foreign policy must therefore promote liberal democracies since they are friendly and therefore not dangerous. Number two, the belief in the use of military power for moral purposes. Number three, a distrust of ambitious social engineering projects, which of course is a huge irony to say the least given American interventionism. And number four, skepticism about the legitimacy and effectiveness of international institutions. 
At least in his first term, says Fukuyama, Bush was not an ideological neoconservatism. His horrible errors, his horrible, his horrible errors involved lack of prudence in the implementation of policies, for example, overstated threat assessments, underestimated global anti-Americanism, and wildly over-optimistic about the reconstruction of Iraq. These were not, in other words, mistakes of underlying principles. By now, though, Bush's name is forever linked with preventive war, regime change, and unilateralism. American exceptionalism, benevolent hegemony, all of which Fukuyama now either rejects or greatly qualifies. Nor does the rest of the world think that we have been morally good, wise, or trustworthy in the use of our might as the world's only superpower. They resent and distrust us, and restoring our credibility will require concerted efforts over a long period of time. It seems very doubtful at this juncture, writes Fukuyama, that history will judge the Iraq war kindly. The war has emboldened jihadists, fostered anti-American resentment among both friends and enemies, created a weak Iraq that will remain heavily dependent upon the United States economically and militarily, spent hundreds of billions of dollars, sacrificed tens of thousands of lives, and distracted us from broader issues, all at a huge political cost. Fukuyama proposes what he calls a, quote, realistic Wilsonianism, end quote, that pushes back from discredited neoconservatism and is characterized by drastic demilitarization, greater multilateralism, renewed efforts to create international institutions that are effective and legitimate, he believes the United Nations is discredited, and sustained commitment to development. How these generalities will effectively combat terrorism remains unclear. Clearly, in his latest view, global history is far from over. To find out just where Fukuyama thinks global history is going, tune in to his new journal called The American Interest, which is meant to supersede his neoconservative past. Francis Fukuyama, America at the Crossroads, Democracy, Power, and the Neoconservative Legacy. For film this week, I review a delightful movie which I highly recommend, the prize winner of Defiance, Ohio, from the year 2005. Set in the post-war 1950s, director Jane Anderson portrays the life of Evelyn Ryan, a mother of ten who supported her family as a quote-unquote contester by winning an astounding number of prizes for her hundreds, if not thousands, of entries. Evelyn is an irrepressible mother, cheerful, dutiful, brilliant, and probably an enabler to her husband, Kelly. Kelly, played by Woody Harrelson, is an insecure, self-loathing underachiever whose alcoholism explodes in the fits of rage and violence. But as was true for that era, he was the man of the house who called all the shots. 
When the, when the cops arrive to quell their domestic violence, for example, they chat with Kelly about baseball. When the priest comes over, he advises Evelyn to be a better wife. If not for Evelyn's soothing, confident oil upon these troubled waters, the Ryan family and marriage would have both disintegrated. In an interesting technical twist, Anderson has a double of Evelyn narrate parts of the film. Anderson based the film on the family memoir by the same title, The Prize Winner of Defiance, Ohio, How My Mother Raised Ten Kids on Twenty-Five Words or Less, by Terry Ryan, one of the ten children. As someone who was raised in a family of eight in the age of fathers knows best, I love this emotionally rich film about a mom who had no power but all the influence. The prize winner of Defiance, Ohio. And finally for poetry this week, familiar words from William Wordsworth, I wandered lonely as a cloud. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high or veils and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils, beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. Continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stretched in never-ending line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. A poet could not but be gay in such a jocund company. I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. For oft when on my couch I lie, in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills, and dances with the daffodils. Thank you for joining us with journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 28th, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.